0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike White, and today it's a very quick talk just about the length of his latest movie. It's a quick talk with Bill Morrison about his latest movie, Let Me Come In, which is playing at the TCM Classic Film Festival 2021. It takes decaying film reels from the lost German silent film, pawns of passion and combines it with music from composer David Lang with the soprano Angel Blue. Apologies for the sound quality of this one. Get some barking dogs, maybe some dishes being put away, that kind of stuff. But hey, it was great talking with Mr. Morrison, and hopefully we'll speak again. I do want to ask you a little bit about your history, and I'm so curious how you came to the method that you use to make films, and how has that changed over the years? So yeah. How did I get here? <laughs> Not
1: sure. Exactly. I know, you know, I, I started out uh, in painting and I often say that, you know, the search for decaying film was in, in some ways a way of trying to replicate the plastic arts on, on film. And you know, I was taught by the great animator, Robert Breer, who introduced me to Stan Brackage and, you know, Ken Jacobs and, you know, Paul Sheritz and Len Lai and, uh, all the great avant-garde yeah. filmmakers of the 50s and 60s, heavy hitters. And so, you know, I, I tried my hand in animation. And I quickly realized how time-consuming and laborious that was. And the more laborious it was, the worse it looked. So I was looking for a way to have the effect of animation or have the effect of seeing many different paintings flitter by your eyeball without it being always obvious that an artist's hand was behind each one of those. And that became sort of heavy, a heavy realization for a viewer like, wow, look at how much work this must have been to make this. And that's not what I wanted people thinking about through first, the paper print collection. And, you know, as inspired by Ken Jacobs, Tom, Tom, the Piper son. And, and later through lyrical nitrate, Peter Delpit's film, the discovery that the same thing happens even more gloriously in, uh, in nitrate film, Led me to seek this stuff out and develop relationships with archives, and pretty much had the same template going forward i'm I'm very interested in strange stories about films and using those films to tell those stories, so that's a a vein of my work that I do and then another are just these sort of beautiful explorations of what nitrate can do, uh, especially with music and Let me come in as an example of of um, the latest of that.
0: What's well, interesting. You're part artist, part anthropologist. Some people <laughs> say archaeologist, anthropologist, I don't
1: know. Historian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't we, know.
0: I, I think an artist has to
1: do a lot of different things in order for their art to have any context. So I certainly wasn't trained as an anthropologist, but it is interesting from everything. The anthro part is you know the study of man.
0: You said that you have partnerships with different archives. And I'm curious, what is that relationship like? And do they say, Oh, this will be perfect for you, Bill, or are you yeah. in there diving in?
1: Yeah. Well, especially with this piece with Let Me Come In. This is really the fruits of a, of a long relationship with the nitrate vault manager who very fastidiously likes to keep his films clean and his shelves free of as much nitrate damage as possible so that it won't affect the rest of his holdings. You know, there, there are certain films that they deem unsalvageable and are, are destined to be thrown away. And sometimes he saves those for me to have one look at and uh, see if I want to make a scan of them and use them as art. So that was the case with Let Me Come In. It was in a print of Pawns of Passion from 1928. It was part of a large collection of nitrate films that had been sitting in a barn in Pennsylvania for for decades. Wow. And when the owner of that collection passed away, the preservationist Bruce Lawton acquired the collection and donated it to the Library of Congress. And, you know, George went through them and, you know, there were certain reels that weren't going to make it. And luckily for me, anyway, reel three of Pawns of Passion was one of those. So I scanned it many years ago, in probably 2013. And it sat I on a hard drive for all these years. I've used little scenes of it in different films in the past, but I'd never really take an entire sequence and set it to music like I've done here.
0: And tell me about the music. How do you go about figuring out this is going to be the right kind of music or do you find it kind of in the wild and say, Oh, this is perfect and bring that in.
1: So usually I, I work with new music, meaning music that hasn't existed prior to the existence of this film. So mm-hmm. that's, Sometimes commissioning a composer to write new music for my film, as is the the way most directors work with composers. And sometimes it's a commission that a composer gets where there's been a request that it also have a film accompany it, in which case we're both commissioned and, and we start talking about what the music is and what the film can be. Well, this was one of those cases, except that David had already written the music, but David Lang, he was commissioned by LA Opera for a digital short series where they were expecting new music to have a film counterpart to it. And David suggested me as the the filmmaker. So this really arrived at my desk at the end of last year as a, a finished piece of music with a vent, you know, a venue attached to it. And you know, once I heard David's sketch and then later the master recording with Angel Blue singing it, I started to think about this footage of, from Ponds of Passion and how this could work with Let Me Come In. And so I was very much inspired by the music to select this footage. And, and then my friends at TCM were asking if I had anything for the festival. And I'm, I was really taken by this new project and I sent it to them.
0: How many projects do you have kind of mulling around in your head at the same time?
1: No, at any given time, there's usually three or four. There's ones that are, you know, they're all in various stages. So they occupy different parts of my head. Some of them are far off dreams of films that I hope to make someday. And those are kind of in a sock drawer part of my head. And then there's ones that where there's actually a deadline and I got to get to work on them. And then there's ones that I'm finishing or just promoting. So, but it's always about three or four.
0: Because you've done... A great number of shorts and features and i'm curious when do you say to yourself this has to be a feature versus this is going to be a short most of it's
1: driven by the footage that i've found or, and the degree to which that footage supports a larger smaller topic so with uh let me come in this i already had a parameter of a short piece of music and but with Dawson City it just kept getting longer and longer and longer you know I, I wanted to make a a film about this collection of films that really hadn't been reported on that much even though it had been discovered 40 years prior so I already thought that was a big topic. And then, well, in order to tell that story, you have to tell the Klondike Gold Rush story. That's a big topic. And then, well, the history of capitalism gets uh, implied in that, you know, so it just got bigger and bigger, you know? So I think the, the, the story mandates the size of the film. I don't, there's some things that I know should be a feature or will be a feature. And some things I think can be told, you know, as a short topic. And luckily there's, there's venues for that now, you know, right. um, where people watch short
0: films. How much manipulation do you do of the footage after you have it scanned in?
1: Oh, very little. You know, I'll uh, inc- sometimes I'll increase the contrast a bit and I'll slow it down, but I'll never add objects or anything like that. There's no After Effects monkey business going on. This is really the organic decay of the film.
0: It's interesting that you're. I don't wanna say the word celebrating, but you're putting a spotlight on the decay of film, but also using it as almost a new medium to point out the beauty that is in the decay.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I would not say that any of my work is a plea to preserve films. You know, you know, I, I think that that is important work, but that that's not what my work is talking about. It's not saying, oh look at how Fucked up. This is we need. We need to throw a lot of money at this so that it doesn't look like this. Instead, I'm saying things fall apart. This is the way this looks. There is a certain synergy to what the original image is and how it's decayed. And sometimes there's not, and those aren't that's footage that I don't use. But when there is, I like to celebrate it. I, like you said, I think it's there's a poetry to it that's really dictated by nature.
0: I'm always curious too, as far as the the frame rate that you're using because some of it just feels so lyrical just in that it flows a little slower. That's a nice thing about silent film and that usually it's
1: 16 or 18 frames a second that it was already shot at. So when you slow it down, you're not really, say you slow it down 50% and every frame is duplicated. So you're seeing every frame twice. The apparent movement is not 50% slower, it's, you know, something like 75% slower. So it's just slightly slower. And all that interference or the patina of decay that you see both on top of and within the image becomes much more beautiful. Instead of it being this sort of annoying, bubbling thing that you wish would get out of the way so you could watch these actors, it becomes something, a thing in and of itself.
0: Do you have your next project already going or have you started just to think about it? Like I said,
1: there's always a few that are on the back burner, and some of them need to get on the front burner <laughs> yeah. so there's a a project i 'm doing with Bill Frizzell at the end of the summer at the tank the tank center for Sonic Arts, which is in Rangeley, Colorado, far northwestern Colorado, an old water tank or mixing tape for for steam engines that found its way eighty miles from any track and uh, has become a auditory laboratory for for sonic artists and because of it has this immense and long lasting sustain so i'm doing a little piece about about the tank and bill's exploring sonically it's its parameters and special magic
0: is this turner classic movies film festival is this the first remote festival that you've attended or are you even able to attend it in person I'm
1: not able to attend Turner Classic Movies Film Festival in person this year, though I have been th- three other editions in Hollywood and had a great time. There was recently a online film festival based out of the Maisel's Film Center called Prismatic Ground. And I had four shorts in that festival and did something similar to this, where the, the films were up for two weeks or 10 days or something. And then I did a and a with the... Uh, with the director of the festival. And that was the, the first of that type of thing I've done in a film festival context. I have a new feature that just premiered last week at the Moscow Film Festival. Again, this is also the soundtrack was also composed by David Lang, and it's called The Village Detective, a Song Cycle. So that premiered in a real theater, in fact, an IMAX screen, April 27th. And and then they'd beamed me in to do a press conference you know, not unlike this the next day. And there was talk about flying me in, but that kind of all got confused and ultimately canceled.
0: Well, Mr. Morrison, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure making your acquaintance and and, uh, speaking with you.
1: Oh, thanks for your questions, Mike. and Great to meet you in person or virtually. (laughs)